open your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 20. While you are turning there, as I uh, mentioned last week, uh, when we come to these times of the year, this is very much like the Jewish feasts. They had seven per year, and they were opportunities to stop and remember and focus on something specific that the Lord wanted them to remember and to think about. And so today, as I mentioned earlier, Easter being sort of our high holy day, we want to stop and think about the resurrection of Jesus, something we normally only consider once a year on Easter or when we're teaching through the scriptures and we get to that passage of scripture that deals with it, and all four gospels deal with it. So it's great that we take time to uh, read through and understand and, and reflect and remember. So John chapter 20, all four Gospels deal with this. All four Gospels have a resurrection account, and I certainly encourage you to take time just to go to each of the Gospels, and as you go toward the end of each Gospel, you'll see uh, where this account is of the resurrection. And I chose John's account because I like the extra details that he brings to the situation. So beginning to read in John chapter 20, we'll read down to verse 18. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, uh, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she, had said, when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, this morning 
for your word. And as we consider it together, may you speak to us. May you illumine our hearts. May you give us understanding and may we have faith to lean in, to trust you and to believe and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Normally when someone dies, we might see an obituary, but normally that is where their biography ends, correct? And if someone were to write a book about the life of a person who had died, at that point we, we buried them and we look on their tombstone and there's a beginning date to their life and an end date to their life. And then we look back on their life and we think about the things they did and what they accomplished and maybe all of the, the things perhaps they brought to the world or they brought to life and they contributed to society. But usually when someone dies, that is the end. That's where their biography ends. And on this day they died and that's the end of their story. But not so with Jesus, is it? Because Jesus did not stay in the grave. In fact, it was just a temporary excursion for him because he had something to prove. And we'll get to that as we go through the story this morning. So we're told here in our, in our passage, in our, our text, John chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. The first day of the week is always Sunday. So to go back and just give you a brief chronology of what just happened this week that we call Holy Week, uh, on Sunday, last Sunday, as we consider the triumphal entry, it was the time when Jesus came in. And we know that that day, as Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, that was the 10th of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. And on that day was the day, four days in advance of the Passover, when the priests and the people would select the Passover lamb, the one that they would sacrifice and prepare the meal from on the day of Passover. So Sunday was the day that Jesus presented himself as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God. And then on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus was in the temple and all around Jerusalem teaching. And as he did those things, and that's what we read in the Gospels between the triumphal entry and when he was crucified, it's about what happened on those days. Now, it's important for us to understand, you know, we think of the Sabbath from a Jewish perspective. The Sabbath was Saturday Technically, because the Jews measured a day from sundown to sundown, the Sabbath is 6 p.m. Friday, if we could just call it 6 p.m., because we know the sun changes as the days are getting longer. But it would be from 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Sunday. That would be the Sabbath. So the Jews reckon days from sundown to sundown, and although we reckon them from midnight to midnight, we usually more think of them as whenever the sun comes up until the next day when the sun comes up. But they thought of the days from sundown to sundown. So at, uh, during the week when the Passover would come, when these feasts would come, there would be uh, high holy days for them, and there would be days that there would be an additional Sabbath. So actually the Passover, which was on Thursday, was a, a high holy day for them. And so Thursday began at 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. So from 6 p.m. Wednesday to 6 p.m. Thursday was the, the Sabbath called Passover, and then there was Friday, and then there was the Sabbath again, which was 6 p.m. Friday to 6 p.m. Uh, Saturday, and then early on the first day of the week, which was always regarded as Sunday, is when um, the ladies came to the tomb. 
So we uh, believe and understand that Jesus went through his trial during Wednesday night. Wednesday night, as the sun went down, was the high holy Sabbath of Passover. And Jesus had the meal with his disciples. And then Judas betrayed him, and they came to get him under the cover of night. And then as we read the accounts, uh, Jesus went through those seven unlawful trials overnight into the morning. And early the next morning, on Thursday morning, on Passover a day that should have been a day of rest, they crucified Jesus. And it's interesting that they crucified Jesus on the Passover because that was the day that the lamb, the Passover lamb, would be killed. And so Jesus was crucified on Thursday, on Passover. And by the end of the day, Thursday, they rushed to take his body down. He died somewhere around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, according to the scriptures. And they had to rush him down prepare him and get him into a tomb before the the Sabbath set, which was the end of the day on Thursday. So all these things happened, and Jesus was put in the tomb, and so now that Jesus was in the tomb Friday and Saturday and then Sunday on the third day, they went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and we know from the other gospel accounts that they went back there because they wanted to finish preparing his body because it had been too quick. And so as Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Uh, While it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, something interesting about Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a person who, when she met the Lord Jesus, she was a prostitute and she was demon-possessed. In fact, we're told when when Jesus healed her and cast out the demons that she was actually possessed by seven demons. So her condition was horrible to say the least. And so once Jesus had healed her and cast those demons out of her and she began to follow him, she became one of his most loyal followers. And so it makes sense that she went to the tomb early because she wanted to honor Jesus And as she came to the tomb that first day of the week, we need to understand that as she came, she did not come thinking that Jesus was alive. She came thinking he was dead and he was still laying there, that there would still be an opportunity to finish preparing his body properly for burial. Because the Jewish process was that they would wrap them in cloths and sort of like a mummy, but they would wrap them up and then lay something over them to cover them and then lay spices and and fragrant oils all around them to sort of counteract the smell of the decaying flesh. And so she wanted to do all of these things according to their processes and honor the death of Jesus. So she got there and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she observed something unique in that situation. The, st- the stone had been taken away, and Jesus was not there. Then she ran, verse 2, and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. This phrase in John's gospel, uh, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was the way John liked to refer to himself. So it's referring here to Peter and John. And she said, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so her assumption was that the dead body of Jesus had been taken, it had been stolen. And so she came and she, 
She told them this, and she was not expecting to find Jesus. But we are told as we go through this passage that there were many things that they did not remember that Jesus had said to them while he was with them. He said, I will be resurrected from the dead. He said that I will not uh, die and, and be in the grave, that the Lord will re resurrect me. And he, even going all the way back to his birth at the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, when it was announced to Mary that she was going to be the mother of Jesus, not Mary Magdalene, but there was like five Marys or so, something like that. And so it's hard to keep them track of them sometimes. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the beginning of Luke, was met by an angel and told that she was going to give birth to Jesus. And in that, that conversation, the angel said to her, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And that was speaking, of course, of the virgin birth, of the fact that she was pregnant without a man. And certainly as we think about the resurrection of Jesus, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And we find in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus said to, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 19, uh, that Jesus was dealing with a situation there uh, with someone who needed to be healed and whatnot. And Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And then later in Mark's gospel, a similar kind of a thing. And Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, when Jesus was talking about that, he's not talking about the power of positive thinking. He's talking about faith, biblical faith, faith that understands who God is and trusts in who God is. And then Paul, of course, said something very similar in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 4. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then finally, Jesus prayed at, on that night as he was in the garden, praying to his father, knowing what was before him. In Mark chapter 14, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will, what you will. So Jesus even said it himself. All things are possible for you. So back to John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 3. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, John, and they were going to the tomb. And they ran together and Peter and John always seem to have this sort of friendly competition, and John records here that he outran Peter. He was a little bit faster. And he, stooping in as he got there before Peter, he was looking in and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and yet he did not go in. Now we are seeing here, and we have seen already as the word uh, saw or seen has been mentioned, that a number of times throughout this passage of scripture, the word see or saw or has seen, had been seen is mentioned. And the interesting thing is when we see it in English, it just seems like they're just saying, look, they saw something with their eyes. But it turns out uh, there are four different Greek words used here in this passage for what they saw and how they saw it. So this word in John chapter 20, verse 5 is John was stooping down and looking into the tomb to see what was going on. It says that he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. That word means to basically look or to glance. 
So it might be just like when you're driving, right? As you're driving your car, you are constantly looking and glancing. You're checking your mirrors. You're like, okay, there's somebody behind me. There's somebody in front of me. There's somebody on my side. And so that's to look or to glance. And so he was looking in and he saw, he glanced in and he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, he caught up following him and he went straight into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now this word <clears throat> means uh, the Greek word is theoro, which is the word from which we get our word theorize. And it means to behold attentively, <clears throat> to uh, discern, to find out by seeing. So this would be sort of like the scientific method, where you're observing something to, to try and understand or to try to learn, to try to figure something out. So the first one, blepo, was to look or to glance. This one is to theorize, to look in such a way as to, to observe very intently. And it says here that John looked in and he just kind of looked around. He's like, yeah, yeah, there's some things laying there. There's some cloths. Peter goes in and as he looks around, he sees that what had been around his head was not there, but it had been folded. And so it's interesting is that we now think, see, the ladies came and they said someone took his body away. Well, if someone took his body away, chances are they would not have left all that stuff behind. They would have just picked up the body and went with it. But not only were the cloths that were wrapped around Jesus' body left there, but the thing that was over his face, the handkerchief as they call it, was actually folded neatly. Now, I don't know about you if you ever go to someone's house and have dinner and let's just say instead of using paper napkins, they break out the good stuff because you're there and they get out the cloth napkins. And isn't it interesting when you go to clean up afterwards, some people just took their napkin and kind of threw it on the table and some of them took it and folded it up neatly, right? It's just the way we are. But Jesus took this napkin off of his face and he folded it neatly and left it and he left it for a sign so it would seem. And so Peter is now putting things together. And so as we continue in verse 8, the other disciple came, who came to the tomb first went in also. So first, John was there. He came, he glanced in. He was kind of a little pensive about going in. Peter comes running and shoots straight into the tomb. And Peter's getting the picture. And now John goes in and follows Peter. And he saw and believed, and this word is yet a third, a different word, it's ido, it's to see the form and the shape. So he's studying now what's happened, he's looking at the cloths, he's looking at how they're positioned. And you might even think that maybe he's doing a little bit of forensics here, like a crime scene, he's kind of looking at everything and going, okay, wait a minute, this doesn't look like the work of people who came in and just took a body, something happened here. Now, although it's not stated, it is suggested by <clears throat> experts who have reviewed this situation that it's probably more likely as they would wrap the body that it would be like the body sort of disappeared out of the wrapping and that, that, that really the cloths were lying there in the form of the body. So as you think about that, that would actually make a little more sense to why they're, they're looking at it and saying, this is a very interesting situation. It's not like somebody got out of bed and threw the covers back. It's that, that something is going on here that has caught their attention. 
So John, looking at it to perceive with intelligent comprehension, is looking at it and it says that he saw and believed. So something connected now as he's been observing the situation. And we need to understand something about the resurrection of Jesus. We need to understand something about the empty tomb. The tomb was opened not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in, to let the world in, to see that Jesus was resurrected. And he's going to reveal himself, isn't he, in a short moment here. And so the tomb was open not to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that we could see and believe just as John did. And the Lord himself promised all over the scriptures, and we don't have time to go to all of them, but a couple of them. In Psalm 16, the Lord spoke prophetically of Jesus, of the Messiah, and said, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. And the Sheol in the Old Testament was understood to be the abode of the dead. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You see, it would be just beyond three days when the flesh would really begin to corrupt and to break down. Plus, the Lord said in Psalm 110, again, a messianic psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, God spoke to his son. And if you look at it in the scriptures, the first Lord is in all capital letters, and it's the the name Yahweh or the covenant name of God. And it says the Lord, all capital, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, said to my Lord, capital L, lowercase, meaning to my Lord, meaning to deity. So this would seem to be the Father speaking to the Son in eternity past in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see, that's pointing to the resurrection. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we saw this person Melchizedek, and when we studied Genesis last year, we understood that that Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And in John chapter 2, Jesus told the disciples, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, speaking, of course, of his body. Jesus in Matthew 12 said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Matthew 20, again, verse 18, Behold, Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge him and to crucify And the third day he will rise again. Jesus said these things to his disciples. And Jesus said later in Matthew 26, he says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. These are all things Jesus said before he was crucified. And finally, in Luke's gospel, he said in Luke 24, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So this was told to them, but at this moment, their minds were blank. They didn't understand. They were trying to make sense of this. And it says in verse 10, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now we come to verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, so 
get the picture here. She came to the tomb early in the morning. The door was open. The big stone had been rolled away. Now, just so you understand, this stone would be something akin, because we're in New England, we understand these things, something akin to a large millstone. And so this, they would have constructed the tomb, and the way they constructed these tombs, if you were wealthy, we know that this tomb was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, they went in and they hired laborers with hammers and chisels, literally to, to chisel out an opening in, the, in a rock, and to basically chisel out something that you could walk into. In fact, today, if you ever get the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and see this, there, uh, just outside the Damascus Gate, which is one of the north gates in the city of Jerusalem, is a tomb. Today it's called Gordon's Tomb uh, because it's sort of been made into a shrine and a, and a tourist site. But it's carved into the side of the hill. And it's on, in the hill that's at the foot or the base of what we call Golgotha or Mount Moriah as it was called in the Old Testament when Abraham went to sacrifice his son, uh, Isaac. And so that's the same hill that Jesus was crucified on. And as you stand there at the bottom and you look at the tomb and you look up the hill, that on the top of that hill is where Jesus was crucified. And that all fits because when you read the chronology and you understand this, and they had to get Jesus down quickly before the Sabbath came and get his body and put it away. They did this. They, they would lay them in a tomb first and allow their body to decay, and then they would take their bones and disassemble the skeleton and put it into a little box. And you can see these all over Jerusalem. If you go there, you'll understand this. It'll make perfect sense to you. But as they were there looking in the tomb, uh, the disciples then came, of course, after Mary told them, they uh, looked in and then they left. But now she stayed there and she's reflecting. And she stood outside the tomb weeping. She's trying to make sense of this. Remember, this is Mary Magdalene who loved Jesus so dearly, the one out of whom he had cast seven demons. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now it's her turn. So the first time she came, she looked and she saw something and and she, she kind of went away, and she didn't really take a good look. And now she saw, as she looked into the tomb, two angels sitting in, in white, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet of where the body of Jesus had lain. Now we come up to another word, this word theor theorize again that we had just looked at. So now she begins to theorize, she begins to think more critically and to ascertain and to discern as she's observing the situation. But now she's being given the privilege of seeing something extra, not just seeing the same thing that Peter and John saw, but now she's meeting and interacting with two angels. Now, as she's standing there weeping, I love a couple of the authors said about her. It says, there are certain things which can only be seen through tears. And another author said, there are certain things dry eyes can never see. And so as Mary stood there and she saw the tomb of Jesus and she saw these angels, she was overwhelmed. She was overcome. And the Lord reaching out to her and ministering to her in this moment. In her brokenness, she sees and she understands. And we need to understand this about the crucifixion and the death and the burial of, of Jesus Christ. This took place on the Passover. And this was the time when the lamb was killed to cover the sins of the people. And whenever we think of the shedding of blood to cover the sins of the people, 
that word is called atonement. Atonement means to cover. And so this is why it's so important, because as, as human beings, as we stand before God, we are all guilty, we are all unrighteous, we are all unholy. We have all sinned and gone astray. Each one has gone after his own way. And isn't this true? We don't like for people to tell us what to do. We don't like rules. We don't like it when people say it, something needs to be done a certain way. We would just want to do it our own way. And that's evidence of our sin. And so it is with God. God says he is holy. And he can only accept that which is holy and that which is righteous. But the problem for us is that we can never be holy and righteous. Our, our flesh is rotten. Our flesh is dead. Our body is decaying. Our heart, heart is rotten. And from the very beginning, just like Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, so we have sinned. And so we have offended God. And so we need a Savior. We need a Lamb. We need someone who can make it right because we can't make it right. And the, the sad truth of false religion is that it's, false religion always suggests that if you just do certain things, you can earn your way back to God or you know, we have these things in, in certain denominations called penance. Or, or we, we do or say certain things to sort of earn our way back into the good graces of God. You see, that's not possible. Our sin has so far removed us from God, it's greater than the, the Grand Canyon. And you could never run and take a, a running leap and jump across it. It's not possible. And so if we are ever going to have a relationship with God, and if we are ever going to be accepted by God, there must be a Savior. You see, atonement took place on the cross, not in the grave. There's this other word, this other word used in the Bible to talk about this issue of salvation and atonement for our sin or covering of our sin, and this other word is called propitiation. And what that means is that the wrath of God against sin has been satisfied. And how has God's wrath been satisfied? By the blood of Christ, which took place on the cross. And it says in Exodus chapter 25, as we just think about this for a moment, all the way back in the book of Exodus, that's when God had the people setting up the temple, setting up the tent of meeting, setting up the implements that would go into the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, and all of these things that would be used in, in the worship of God in the Old Testament. And in Exodus 25, we find where God gives the instruction of making what is called a mercy seat of pure gold. And that's the lid that goes on the top of the box. Now I'm going to bank on the fact this morning that probably most of you have seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in that movie, you see the, the gold Ark of the Covenant being brought up out of a box. And as you see it, the, you see the angel's wings stretched out toward the center. That whole lid is called the mercy seat. That was actually a fairly accurate depiction of the ark. And it says here in Exodus chapter 25, you shall make two cherubim of gold, hammered work, you shall make them uh, at the two ends of the mercy seat and one cherub at one end and one at the other end and you shall make the, the two ends of it and you shall call it the mercy seat. Now I want you to consider with me this morning as Mary was looking in and God gave her the opportunity to look in and to see these two angels, one sitting on one end where his head had been, and one sitting on the other end where his feet had been, that as she saw this, I'm not so sure she connected the dots here, but I'm just wondering, was that not perhaps a picture of the mercy seat? 
the two angels at either end where Jesus' body had lain and someone looking in and seeing it and understanding in that moment that Jesus is no longer there because sin had been atoned for. And then in verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She still isn't quite there. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus, Theoro, to, to theorize again. She saw Jesus standing there and she didn't understand that she was looking at Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So she thought he was perhaps the gardener of the tomb. And she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me, where have you laid him? I'll take, I'll take him away. Now, in that moment, you can, you can sort of understand her, her zeal, right? And we all get this way. She's like, you know, you just tell me where he is. I'll go pick up his body and move him myself. I'll take him. Where is he? And Jesus said to her, Mary. And in that moment, something about the way he said it, she understood. Her eyes were open. She, she, she understood in that moment that it was Jesus. And she understood. She turned to him and said, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, which literally meant my teacher. It was a term of endearment to her. Now, people have wondered, why wouldn't she have recognized who he was? We know from the book of Revelation that Jesus in heaven still bears the scars of the mistreatment, of the brutal uh, process of crucifixion. As we read through the, the accounts leading up to the trials and how he was beaten and they put a bag over his face and they punched him. And Isaiah chapter 50 tells us forward looking to the day that they would crucify the Messiah, uh, that they would actually rip his beard out. They would just grab it and pull it out. And so they mistreated him in a, in a brutal and a horrific way. And we don't need to go through all of those details here this morning. But just understand that as, as, as we looked at on Friday night in Isaiah 53, which gives us a picture of the Messiah, it said his visage, which is his appearance. His appearance was so marred that he was beyond recognition. So I believe that because of his appearance and his resurrected state, and he still bears those scars that she didn't recognize who he was. And she probably also partially didn't recognize who he was because her eyes were filled with tears. And so she understood. She turned to him and she said, Rabboni, my teacher. Now I want to point to you something this morning, very special, very tender. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus said these words, To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus spoke to her and she knew in her heart, she knew that's Jesus. I know that voice. Have you ever heard his voice? Because this morning, this is a holy moment. The Lord is calling out. He's, he wants to speak to every single person this morning, whether you know him or you don't. If you don't know him, his voice is crying out to you this morning, listen to my voice. I'm calling you. And for those of you who do know him, you've trusted him, you've given your life to him, he's calling you to attention, to reflect upon him this morning. He said to her, 
as she was tempted, most likely, as she probably often did, to give him a hug. You know, a lot of us here are huggers. I love that about the church. Not great in coronavirus, but hey, it's still a good thing. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascended to my father and your father and to my God and to your God. And notice how Jesus at this point brings them into relationship. He says, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He wants them to understand that he has indeed paved the way for us to have a relationship with his father. You see, up till now, Jesus has been talking about his father as the father. Now he's saying, my father and your father, my God and your God. He's bringing them in. Now it's possible for man to have a relationship with God. And Mary Magdalene, verse 18, came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Here's our fourth word this morning, seen. It's called horao, and it means to discern clearly, to perceive, and to fully understand. So there is a progression here with how people see things. There's this glancing and just sort of, you know, okay, I'm aware there's something there. I saw, yes, there's some cloths or some rags laying on the tomb. Then there's this theorize. I can sort of see it and, and uh, think about it and like sort of, you know, wonder what's going on here. There's this word ido, which is to think uh, and to see, perceive the form. And, you know, John saw the, the form of what was lying there. And now this word hurao, to see, uh, to see clearly, to discern clearly, to fully understand. Whenever this word hurao is used, it means they've come to full understanding. It all makes sense. There's nothing that they don't understand about the situation. Now they've reached a conclusion. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen, that she fully understood, that, the Lord, that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now, this is in fulfillment of a beautiful thing in Psalm 22. Now, Jesus himself will, of course, appear to his disciples, but now he's giving her the honor of going before him. Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Mary's being given the opportunity to go and to be the first bearer of the good news of the gospel. You see, death was proof that Jesus was human. Resurrection was proof that Jesus was God. Death was proof that Jesus was human. Resurrection was proof that Jesus was God. The resurrection is the crowning achievement. It's the crowning proof that Jesus is who he said he was. Listen to these other scriptures that describe the importance of the resurrection. It's the most important event in human history. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter was delivering on the day of Pentecost, a Spirit-filled sermon, the very first one he ever gave, under the influence of the Holy Spirit to the people there in Jerusalem. It said, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. And as he's going through and speaking about this, he says, this Jesus whom David spoke of, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. 
Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Now I want to take a step back for a moment and draw your attention to something. When these feasts would happen, sometimes feasts would overlap or they would be together. So we've just talked about the, the, the feast of uh, the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread. Well, on Sunday, the day that Jesus was resurrected, which was the end of the Passover, that was the beginning of the 50 days of the Feast of First Fruits, which would be culminating in the, the Pentecost, the celebration of Pentecost, 50 days from the conclusion of Passover. Why is that important? Because on Sunday, on the first day of the week, on the day after the feast's conclusion, the priest would go into the temple and take a shock of grain and offering it in advance of the Feast of First Fruits and say, Lord, we are preparing ourselves for the harvest that you're going to bring in. So the priest went in and he took that, that shock of grain, which was basically like a handful, and he would take it in before the Lord. And in the Old Testament, we read about this thing called a wave offering. And he would take this grain and wave it before the Lord and say, Lord, you're going to bless us. And we know that you're going to give us an amazing harvest. So we're coming in anticipation of the harvest. And we're offering this very first shock of grain to you to, to thank you and to recognize who you are and to know that you're going to do this. So in 50 days from then, they would come to the Feast of First Fruits. And so remember, Jesus said, go and tarry until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So isn't it interesting that on the day that Jesus resurrected, that the, the priest was in the temple offering that first shock of grain as the, the foreordaining of the Feast of First Fruits. This is all prophetic and it all points to Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That is the grace of the gospel right there. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for he who has died has been freed from sin. For the death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. If we believe in Christ, then that becomes ours. Then finally in Romans 8, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You see, Jesus did this for us. One commentator said, evidence that does not lead to experience is nothing but dead dogma. The key is faith in the word of God. Historical faith says Christ lives. Saving faith says Christ lives in me. And the question for us this morning is, do you have faith? Do you believe in Jesus? A few more times as we go through this passage, 
and we're at the end of our time this morning, but we keep seeing this word saw come up in John 20, verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus kept giving them opportunities. This one is, again, to see the form and the shape. Then Jesus appeared to them again, and he said, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, so I send also you. And then a little further down in John 20, verse 25, the other disciples said to Thomas, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first came and and showed himself to them. The other disciples said, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. That is hurao, that is to see, perceive, and to fully understand. We're convinced. So Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, unless I see for myself the shape, uh, of the, the print of the nails and put my finger in, into his, or my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he's sitting there with all of his brothers, with all of these people he spent the last three years with, and they're all going, man, we saw him. It was the Lord. We're fully convinced. We, we're, we know it was Jesus. He's resurrected. He's alive. It's just like he said, and Thomas is like, nope, not unless I see it and experience it for myself. And we know by the grace of the Lord Jesus, a week later, he appeared to Thomas. He appeared to the disciples, and as he appeared to the disciples that week later, he walked right over to Thomas and said, here you go. Now, where was Jesus when Thomas was asking that question a week earlier? People would say, well, he wasn't in the room, but obviously he was. He was there, but they didn't know it. He was in the, in the form of a spirit in that room. And as he was there, he walks right up to Thomas the second time. And he says, you see, last week you were asking about me. You said you wanted to see. Here you go. Go ahead and stick your finger in the hole of my wrist. Go ahead. It's all right. Ghosts don't have flesh. I'm not a ghost. And so as he did that, we know that Thomas then believed. And Jesus said to him in verse 29, Thomas because you have seen me, hurrah, you've now fully understood, and you, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me. They've never seen me with their eyes. They've never seen my form or my shape, and yet they have believed. And then we find at the end of the chapter here, Jesus truly did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what we've seen here today as we've looked through all of these these occurrences, these, these situations where people encountered Jesus and they encountered the tomb, we've looked at people who walked up and they would just look or glance or they would just you know, take a quick look at what was happening. And then there were people who theorized, who beheld attentively, who thought about what they were seeing. Then we had people who saw the form and the shape, and they looked a little more intently. And then we saw people who saw and discerned clearly and fully understood. I put my own labels on these. The blepo person, the one who looks or glances, is sort of like the ADD person. I just took a quick look and looked away. I know there's something there, but not really interested in the details. The theoro person is the thinker. It's the person who considers things. And then the ido person, the one who sees the form and the shape, they're a little more scientific. They observe, they look at the details. But then the hurao person, the one who seeks to really fully understand, that's the person who is the seeker. 
And Jesus reveals himself to people who want to know, who are truly seeking. And so there's a process here, isn't it? As we read this passage this morning, people came and they had different ways that they looked or that they saw Jesus. But in the end, all of the people in this story were convinced. They all came to that fourth understanding, the understanding of who he truly was. And let me ask you this morning, where are you? Are you one of those first three where you're still thinking about things and you're not really sure and you're not really convinced or maybe you don't even really care? Or are you a seeker? Are you a person who really wants to know who Jesus is because he has revealed himself fully in his word, in his creation, and he is revealing himself fully to us here today by his spirit, by his word? And so let me just say to you as we close this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, this is the ideal time. He is calling your name just like he called Mary's name. And he wants you to hear his voice, but more importantly, he wants you to understand. He wants you to respond. He wants you to say yes to him, that you might follow him, that you might become a benefactor of the shed blood of Christ, that you might become a person whose sin has been atoned for, who is forgiven And those who are forgiven are set free. We no longer have to carry the burdens and the worries and the cares because Jesus carries those for us. You see, when he died on the cross, he did it for us. And so this morning, as we close in prayer, if you'd like to give your heart to Christ, this is the ideal time. Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. And we just thank you for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for what you've spoken to us this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you resurrected from the dead by your own power. And you were the one who said that you would raise yourself up, and you did. No one can do that. No one else in human history ever has been resurrected from the dead and lived, but you have. And Lord, you did it for us. You did it for the glory of God. You did it that we might have a relationship with your Father. You did it because you love us. And Lord, thank you for that love, that undying, unfailing love, that relentless love. Lord, someone once called you the hound of heaven. And so this morning, thank you that you continue to hound us until we turn and and until we believe, until we give our hearts to you, until we trust you, until we believe you, until we come to that place of understanding that we see you with eyes that fully believe and fully know who you are. May we see this morning what they have seen. May we see the risen Jesus, and may we believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.